Galatians, the power of a promise. In the last weeks, we've read Paul's understanding of a promise the Lord made to Abraham way back in the day and and how a promise made hundreds of years before Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church, how this promise would impact the church of Jesus in those days, but also impact the church for today. And Paul, friends, the Lord used Paul as a church planner and as a preacher to build the church, and he wrote half the New Testament. The Lord actually wrote half the, new, <laughs> wrote the whole thing, but using Paul, wrote about half the New Testament. And to read and to preach Paul, we've got to have an understanding of Paul and the church to whom Paul is speaking. And, and, and this is the good news about the Galatian church. It's made up of at least two groups. You've got folks in that body who've been a part of faith things for a long time. They have a bit of an understanding about the things of God. God and certain events in the lives of of God's people. They're familiar with some of the language and things related to the faith of the God of the Jews and, and these new Christians in that day. But you also have newcomers to the faith who don't have the background and the understanding in terms of some of the language and some of the history. You know, the church to whom Paul is preaching is really no different than the church to whom I'm preaching. Folks who have been a part of the things of the church for a long time, and then you've got some who are relative newcomers. And, 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 and with all of these scenarios, God's Word through Paul really is more important and needed than ever before. And Paul writes this letter with the assumption that a majority remember a promise made to a man named Abraham. And we've referenced this before, and, and we will again. And before we, before we see the very brief eight verses this morning, I need to set a stage of explanation, and I'm going to give you three Scripture references which will paint the backdrop to what Paul is saying. We first meet Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And we've seen this. What happens, the Lord says to Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And then the Lord continues this promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this promise made to Abraham, again, Abraham is, he and his wife are well past childbearing years. In fact, Sarah was unable to have children. And the Lord makes this promise to Abraham. And you know what? This promise is actually fulfilled initially at one level when a son is born to Abraham and Sarah, a little boy named Isaac. And then this promise which God has made about the descendants and these blessings, the Lord reminds 
Abraham and reminds Abraham's son Isaac and reminds the grandson of Abraham, a man named Jacob, throughout their stories in the book of Genesis, that first book in the Bible. But prior to the birth of Isaac, this promise to Abraham is amplified. And it's taken to a new level in Genesis chapter 15. What happens? The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And God takes Abram outside and says, Look toward the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, and God says, So shall your descendants be. And as we've seen before, Abram believes in the Lord, and the Lord credits it, imputes it to Abram as righteousness, as a right standing. It's at that moment in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham is saved. Because he trusts in the promise that the Lord makes him about who is coming. Amen. And this is what happens... In that chapter, the Lord then tells Abraham to make a sacrifice and place these cut pieces across from one another and he lays them out on the ground. Well, it's late. It's very late in the day when this happens. And the sun begins to go down. And a deep sleep falls upon Abraham And we see that behold, terror and great darkness fall upon him. And then God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and they will be oppressed for 400 years. And then the Lord says a few more things to this man named Abram. But then the Lord says this about his descendants. He says, I'm going to bring them out of this enslavement and I'm going to judge their oppressors. And then it comes about the sun sets. And it's very dark and behold, this vision comes to Abraham of a smoking oven and a flaming torch. They appear and they pass between these these cut pieces. And on that day, we see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, we see that on that day the Lord makes a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. That's a huge piece of land. And what happens? The Lord in this very frightening encounter points ahead to a day which will follow these events involving Abraham's great-grandchildren after they settle in Egypt. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his family, comes to Egypt due to a famine which nearly wipes out the ancient Near East. And this family, which has already been promised to Abraham, remember, he and Sarah are advanced in age, Sarah is barren, and the Lord 
fulfills, begins to fulfill this promise and brings them not just a child, but grandchildren and then great-grandchildren. And this family, promised by God to Abraham, has now experienced this blessing of deliverance, bringing them into a land of plenty out of a, out of a famine. And then Abraham's great-grandson, a man named Joseph, is actually second in command in Egypt. And all is well for a while. For a while. It's, it's, if you were to look at this in the Bible, it, it's the very end of the book of Genesis. And when you flip the page from the first book of the Bible to the second book of the Bible, you flip the page from Genesis to Exodus, it's, it's a page turn for us, but it's actually 400 years. And life for Abraham's descendants who are now in Egypt, life begins to take a turn for the worse. And this is to what God points. This is to where God points in this vision, this dark vision that He gave on the day He made a covenant with Abraham. And today, Paul is reminding the Galatian church of the promise made to Abraham as well as this covenanted promise, this promise which is now part of the covenant made to Abraham. And then, Paul is going to remind the church of one more event, which would be very well known to these early Jewish Christians, and it's the giving of the law. And these three events we've got to recognize and we've got to remember if we're going to understand Paul. The promise made to Abraham, the covenant, and now the law. The law, which we call the law of Moses. In Exodus 19, you've seen, probably seen the movie The Ten Commandments when, when Israel is brought out of out of enslavement there in Egypt and Moses. God calls Moses to lead his, set his people free and to lead his people out. And this happens and they cross the Red Sea and they're into the wilderness. And then the Lord calls to Moses in Exodus 19. The Lord calls to Moses from Mount Sinai and he says, this is what you're going to tell Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. And now if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's that word again, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, you will be a holy nation to me. Share this. And then Moses does, he shares this with the elders of the people and he sets before them all the words which the Lord has commanded. And all the people, they answer together and they say all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud so that all the people may hear when I speak with you and that they may trust in you forever. And then Moses shares these words with the nation. And then in Exodus 20, the people are watching. And they hear the thunder. And they see the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain is smoking. The people are afraid and they tremble. I I would be too. (laughs) And they say to Moses, "Speak speak for us. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But don't have God speak to us. Do not have God speak to us because we will die. 
in essence, Moses be our go-between between us and God. And I want you to remember that. In Exodus 20, the Lord gives the law to Moses. In the law of Moses, we've heard of the Ten Commandments, morality laws, how to live, community laws, how to live with each other, <laughs> live amongst each other, dietary laws, lots of it first really odd, weird-sounding stuff to us, which is found in the first five books of the Bible. And here's the thing about the law of Moses. We've seen the promise, we've seen the covenant, and now we see the law of Moses. It diagnoses the presence of something ugly. Our sin. Sin is a result of man's broken relationship with God. And we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And the law explains this very clearly. And the law actually gives statutes which counter these sins. The law gives the diagnosis for sin, but cannot provide the cure. As doctors will say, well, this is the problem, and this is, uh, these are some things we can maybe try, but this definitely is the problem. That's what the law does. The law establishes the reality of the fact that you and I are sinners. And this is why the law of God applies to all people throughout all of history. It provides the diagnosis, but it doesn't provide the cure. And this morning, in eight very short verses, Paul wants us to understand the promise, which is the cure for sin. He says, brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, there's that word again, when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Well, what's Paul saying? Well, we have a covenant, which is an agreement, and it's at a very heart, it's an agreement. And then it, then it can become a formal agreement, which can become the basis for a contract or a legal agreement. We've talked about contracts before. And when a, an agreement is ratified, what that means is it becomes legal and valid. It's signed and it becomes a legal, a legal binding contract. And once, once it's signed and sealed, you can't change it. And Paul says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Huh. The Lord does not say, and two seeds, as one would be referring to many, but rather as in referring to one. What in the world is Paul saying? Well, you heard me point this out, that the Lord made a promise to Abraham and his descendants. His family. The Lord made a promise to Abraham and his family. And I want you to see who else is in Abraham's family. If you, go to the, if you go to the first book of the New Testament, actually, if you go to the first book of the New Testament, to the first chapter of that first book, to that first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we are introduced to Jesus the Messiah, who's the son of David, who's the son of Abraham. The descendant to whom Abraham was pointed when the Lord gave, gave his right standing to Abraham there in Genesis 15, 
when the Lord gave it to him and credited it to Abraham as righteousness, Abraham could see his descendant, Jesus the Messiah. Forty-two generations. Forty-two generations between Abraham to Jesus. Now that's a mess of relatives, would you agree? (laughs) That's a whole lot. Paul says, what I'm saying is this, this agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled. It's a promise. And even it couldn't be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. If the promise is canceled, God would break His promise, and God's not going to break this promise that He made to Abraham. In Exodus chapter 12, we see that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. They were enslaved, they were oppressed, and this is what the Lord told Abram in that dark, scary vision. Know for certain your descendants will live in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt. And they will be enslaved and they will be oppressed, but I will set them free. And God did that. And through that one descendant, the Lord not only promised to set, gave the promise of salvation for them, but has given us the promise, given us to the promise of salvation with that one descendant. 400 years between God's promise to Abraham and the giving of the law, but the promise came first. That's the power, friends, of a promise. And Paul says if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. It, it, it can't be based on one thing and then apply to another because God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. God granted it to Abraham. That's the power of a promise. It comes before the law. And and sometimes we look at different translations. The New Living Translation says this, verse 18, this way. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God, in His graciousness, gave it to Abraham as a promise. And He gives it to us as a promise. Paul then asks a question in verse 19. He says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show the people their sins. The law is designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave His law through angels to Moses. You remember, the, the, the Lord gave through this holy incident on Mount Sinai, He gave the law to Moses. And then Moses was the mediator between God and the people. Do you remember what they had told, what they begged of Moses? We don't want God to speak to us because we will die. You be, the, you be our mouthpiece. You be our mediator. You be our go-between. And that's what happened. Moses is the go-between between God and the people. Paul says this in verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one party only. You know, if, if you, 
Uh, you only bring in a mediator. We've looked at, look at this legal language we've seen. We've seen words like covenant and words like ratified, and now we see a word mediator. If a mediator is called in, it's because there, there are at least two parties having to work something out. But look at what Paul says at the end of verse 20. God is one party. God is one party. There's no need for a mediator. There's no need for a mediator. God is the one who made this promise to Abraham of the salvation which was coming. God made that promise, and guess what? It's not upheld by us. It's upheld by God. You see what happens when Jesus took our sin upon Himself at that moment of crucifixion, Jesus, as God incarnate, God in a man, Jesus took our sin upon Himself. In essence, God the Son took it on Himself. In essence, God Himself took our sins on Him. God made the promise, and God upheld the end in Himself. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It's upheld by God. Paul says, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? No. If the law could give us new life, if it could discharge life, then we could be made right with God by obeying the law. But that's not what happened. The Scripture, the law, has confined everyone under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all of us who believe. If we trust Jesus, we're trusting in the promise which was made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. In the way that, that Abraham believed God and God credited to Abraham as righteousness, a right standing before him, in the very same way, if we have a faith like Abraham's, believing the promise of God for a Savior who's come to deal with our sin, if we believe that, if we trust that in faith, then that is given to us, it's credited to us, it's imputed to us as righteousness, a right standing. It's a transaction. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a transaction. But something we need to make sure we understand is the, is the law then no good? It's a fair question. Should we scrap the law? No. Jesus and the law are connected. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, He says, Don't presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to negate what we know as the Old Testament. He, he said, I didn't come to abolish any of that, but I came to fulfill it. And Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not the smallest letter or stroke of letter, not a consonant of it, not a vowel of the law shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. You see, if you and I trust in in Jesus to take care of sin, as I've said before, it's logic 101. If we are trusting Jesus to take care of the reality of sin, this is what we're saying, that sin is real. Sin's there, and that Jesus is there, and the need for Jesus is there. And we we are acknowledging the reality of sin as defined by the law of Moses. Sin is defined by the law. And it's given diagnosis like going to the doctor. It's given diagnosis by the law. And the law points to the cure for sin. And the cure is a sacrifice which will pay the sin debt. And Jesus is that full and final atoning sacrifice. Amen. Jesus Jesus is the one who brings life and brings victory brings forgiveness of sin. The law points to it, but the law can't do it. Being good can't do it. Trying to check all the boxes can't do it. Trying to clean myself up before I walk in the church door, that doesn't do it. Trying to be nice to my... I mean, it's good to be nice to your spouse and your kids and all that, but, but trying to earn God's favor by doing that, that's the works of the law. That doesn't bring righteousness. Only Jesus brings it. Jesus is the one who brings victory. Jesus and the law are intertwined, and the law doesn't pass away. We might prefer that it would, but it doesn't pass away. See, if one ignores the law, really one's ignoring Jesus. We can't ignore sin, because if we ignore sin, we're ignoring our need for Jesus. Sin is there, sin is real, and thanks be to God, we have the opportunity to have a Savior to take care of that sin. Mm. And that is the power found in that promise.